You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, and my co-host, Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have Persimmon, ITV, Taylor Wimpy, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Entain, and Duolingo. Sam, should I kick off with Persimmon? Yes. So it's the first of our two house builders this week coming out with their full year results. The total group revenue are up 8.4% to £3.6 billion and completions rising 7.1%, with average selling prices up 2.8% to £237,000. This led underlying profit to grow by 12.7% to £973 million. And if we look at the results in a little bit more detail, Persman saw the average private sales rate per site increase by 9% and 22% on pre-pandemic levels, with a strong mortgage market and low interest rates. And for the year, the group delivered a total of 14,551 new homes, 12,018 to private owner-occupiers, and the remaining 2,533 to housing associations. Rising input costs were offset by a combination of efficiencies and price increases, with underlying operating margins coming in at 28%, up from 27.6% last year. Persimmon also added a further 20,750 plots to the land portfolio over the course of the last year, taking the total to 88,043 from 84,174, with a value of the land assets worth £1.8 billion, which was £100 million ahead of last year. Forward sales were down slightly to £2.2 billion from £2.3 billion last year. The group also commented that they had £75 million set aside to help pay for the cladding removal, with 33 of their properties requiring work. Net cash stood at £1.2 billion, with money owed to land creditors up £78.3 million to £407.6 million, with the increased buying over the course of the last year. Persimmon is expecting volume growth of between 4 and 7% for 2022, with margins static despite cost inflation. An annual dividend of £1.25 per share, in addition to a £1.10p payment of surplus capital, is due to shareholders. In terms of valuation, Persimmon has a market cap of just over £7 billion and has a price to book of 2.1. And that's broadly in line with its 10-year average. The prospective dividend yield is 10.5%. As with the previous house builders we've reported on, I think they're very good results from Persimmon. Persimmon is more discounted now over the past couple of weeks, despite these strong results, with the wider market sell-off, um, with the geopolitical uncertainty in Ukraine. But I think the fundamentals for it are still very strong. I suppose some of the market worries might be if inflation gets out of control and the Bank of England was forced to raise interest rates significantly, that could dampen and cause the, the, I suppose the, the cyclical side of Persimmon to come through but I'm not sure how likely or how able the Bank of England would be to to do that without crippling the wider economy. I like Persimmon, and similarly to Taylor Wimpy that we'll come on to, I think the house building sector is still very attractive. Sam, what what are your thoughts on these results? It's their PE ratio. So the price to earnings ratio for Persimmon is about 8.8. That's all right. They are very good results, I think. 
up on the pre-pandemic figures by that much is very good. Not really any signs of inflation hitting the results yet. My concern is the operating margin is so high. So what's it say? The operating margin is now up to 28%. And at what point does that get so high with house prices where they are, that they start to become more of a target? I know we've already got the extra tax that's come in for them, but I mean, if you're, I mean, 28% is a very, very good margin. So you think there might be more political pressure coming or if there yeah, is I just I just think margins. Yeah, I, I think there's only I think the only way they should be looking to grow the business really should be to sell more houses. And I think <laughs> if they increase the margins too much, they're just gonna make themselves a target. Because when you've got a housing crisis and, you know, I know it's, I appreciate it's only creeping up a little bit, but if it creeps up a little bit every year, before you know it, they're over 30% operating margins. At what point do you say, well, actually, I, I appreciate that's the operating margin, so the net margin will actually be lower, but it just seems very, they are very, very good margins. And it's impressive that they've been able to do that, but in such a political uh, sector, is it actually that much of a good thing? But yeah. it, it is cheap. I wouldn't... I wouldn't worry too much about inflation in the sense that I think that any cost increases they have, they'll be able to just pass on. I do agree with what you said, though, that if the Bank of England starts having to raise interest rates, that could be a problem. But even still, I think we're still, we've still got such a supply problem in housing. This, I don't know. I think it's probably, you know, if you look at the top of previous cycles for housing stocks, this is probably quite a good top of the cycle to be at compared to some of the others. Mm. That makes yeah. sense. And I think they're in a, a healthier state than mm. most of the house builders this time, assuming we are at the top compared with previous yeah, 2007. Yeah, I, I, I like it. I think it's a very reasonable valuation and very, very nice dividend yield. <laughs> yeah. Would you buy shares in a house builder at the moment? I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't be interested in it just because of the opportunity cost. But I wouldn't. Fine. I probably wouldn't not buy them if I was looking to buy them. I don't think I would not buy them at the minute. I think with the dividend yield being that high, I think it's quite a comfortable dividend as well. Yeah, probably I think the it's, next it's couple of least, years. Yeah, I think I think it's at least two times covered. But I mean, outside to, generally that. outside of tobacco, where can you get a dividend yield that's that well covered in the UK? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. And I can't, I can't, I can't, I genuinely can't think of one. Okay, fine. So it's a, a dividend hero. Dividend hero. <laughs> okay, right. fine. ITV. ITV, yeah. So ITV have come out with their full year results. And full year underlying revenue rose 24% to 3.5 billion, reflecting double digit increases across both advertising and ITV studios. Underlying operating profit rose from 554 million to 793 million. The group's launching the next stage of its digital strategy. It plans to double digital revenues to 750 million by 2026, helped by the recent launch of ITVX. ITVX is based on a subscription model offering premium ad free versions. ITV will premiere much of its new content on this site. It will also offer third party content. Total group content spending for the new year is expected to be higher than planned. ITV announced a final dividend of 3.3p in line with previous guidance. And looking forward, they intend to pay a full year ordinary dividend of at least 5p. And that's the share price is currently 83p. The shares fell 15.1% following the announcement. We break them down a bit further. 
Advertising revenue in the core media and entertainment division rose a record 24% to 2 billion, which led to a 21% increase in overall revenue to 2.3 billion. Video on demand ad revenue rose 41%. Digital revenue, which includes revenue from available on demand, digital sponsorship and subscription services was up 40% to 347 million. Streaming viewing hours were up 22%, with monthly active users up 19% to 9.6 million. ITV's family share of viewing, which includes traditional TV, was broadly flat and was boosted by the likes of the Euros and Love Island. Content costs rose 18% to 1.2 billion, reflecting lower spending when productions were delayed during the pandemic. Operating profits rose to 598 million from 421 million. For the new financial year, total content costs will be about 1.23 billion, which is higher than the guidance of 1.16. Total advertising revenue is expected to be up around 16% in the first quarter. For ITV Studios, the revenue rose 28% to 1.8 billion, but on an organic basis and ignoring the effective exchange rates, this was up 31%. Underlying profit rose 41% to 215 million. Strength in the US and other markets means 57% of revenue was generated outside the UK. Performance was boosted by a higher number of internal sales, where the studios produce and sell shows like This Morning, Coronation Street, and I'm a Celebrity, back to the media and entertainment business. Operating margins are currently 12%, but social distancing and health and safety guidelines are still making sets more expensive to run. ITV Studios has around 500 programmes currently in production in the UK and internationally. Pre-cash flow fell 32.7% to £407 million, largely reflecting the timing of tax payments. Net debt fell to 414 million from 545 million. In terms of the valuation, the company's trading at a P ratio of 7.3, and that compares to a 10 year average of 11.4. And the prospective dividend yield over the next 12 months is 5.5%. One thing that I think is quite interesting is this is that the revenues are now above the pre pandemic figures, but the operating profits lower. And that's because the revenue mix has changed. So because the studios division is becoming larger and larger. A lot of what they're doing is they're going out and creating content and then they license it or selling it to like overseas, I guess, TV stations and stuff. But that is lower margin. So although the revenue is back up because it's lower margin, I think it said their operating profits are only 12% in the studios. That means the operating profit is still below the pre-pandemic figures. I think this business is very reasonably priced, especially if they are actually holding on to the market share they've got. I think 7.3 is very good for a PE ratio. My concern would be, and I don't think you necessarily need the growth at a PE of 7.3 and a dividend yield of the next of 5.5%, but I would have concerns about ITVX because I just don't know if their content is a high enough quality that people will pay for it as a standalone thing. Mm. And I can see why they've got to try it. And maybe maybe they don't need that many for it to make a, de- a difference. But I mean, who is really going to be paying ITVX because I I can't think of a single person where I think actually I could I could see anyone I know wanting to pay for that apart from mm-hmm. maybe you know, if it's maybe like Americans you know that maybe like some of the shows and they can't get it I don't know if they have like problems getting it for some reason on like they don't have ITV player or something like that or they can't get it on like the terrestrial TV maybe for some of those but I think it's pretty niche really I wouldn't be relying on it to drive the business forward and I wouldn't expect it be expecting it to have anything like the impact that Disney Plus or Netflix has. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on these results and ITV as a whole, John? 
Well, I mean, it certainly seems like it has a very fair valuation. And I suppose on the surface, some of the results, 24% revenue growth and 41% on the video on demand with streaming up. But I think you highlighted some of the problems with the content cost and that being lower margin. I wasn't, I was a bit confused as to why the market reacted so badly. Was that, do you think that was on the basis of this, this spend on content and ITVX or because to me, the, the results didn't seem that bad. I, I'm not sure what the expectations were. I wonder if it is, because that's the only thing that's higher than, because that is higher than the guidance. So that could be the only mm. thing really in there that they weren't expecting. But I mean, as well, it's, it's probably, it's come out and not the best time for any kind of slightly bad news, just because everything's going down anyway at the minute. Um, mm. So, they, you know, if, if they'd come out with these exact same results three months ago, maybe the shares are flat. I don't know. Oh, like okay. down just a few percent. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 they didn't, the results on the surface, like I said, seemed fairly good to me, but I suppose it's not, I don't think it's a business with all of the quality attributes that I'd like to invest in. But I think if you're a value investor, you might, you might take a, a more in-depth look at it and then sort of, I suppose, thrash out those issues with ITVX and where you saw that going. Yeah, although, I, like I said, I don't think it's priced such that ITVX needs to succeed to justify the no. share price. No, no, fair enough. What do you, whilst we're on the subject of it, did you see that Disney are coming out with a new subscription model? I didn't. And I, sh- so, I, should, <laughs> I, so I should probably, as first of all, a, a Disney shareholder, but then also as a Disney Plus subscriber. Or to, to do, do well, Disney Plus me. is fine. Nothing's really changing, but they're coming out with a new tier with ads in. So they're going to have a much cheaper one, but you've got adverts on it to oh, try and boost the figures, which my oh. initial reaction was, I don't like that. I, I think. Yeah. I, I think you're better off, you know, if, if you're struggling to, yeah. so I mean, as well, like the last set of numbers they put out were fantastic. I don't, yeah. I don't feel like they need to be doing this anyway. Yeah. I'd rather they just lowered the price, like, or just get more, if they're struggling to get a certain demographic on, get them on at a lower price and then just up it over time. But I think the content's yeah. good enough. They don't need to be doing an ad supported version. Whereas no. like with ITV, with their ITVX, I think they probably Absolutely. do need yeah. the ad supported yeah. one because it's not good enough that you'd probably pay for it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's the same with, you know, Channel 4, ITV. I don't know, mm. does 5 have something? Yeah, probably. Um, but yeah, no, with your Netflix and your Disney Pluses and even Amazon Primes, I wouldn't have thought so, but Amazon Video rather. In- interesting. Yeah, yeah. Not, probably not so keen. That's the initial, initial reaction. No, I didn't like it either. Right, should we move back to the house builders? Yes. Okay, so uh, number two, Taylor Wimpy, their full year results out also. Revenue for the year was up 53.6% to £4.3 billion. Completions, including joint ventures, rising 47%. And the average price of private completions up 3%. Total home completions, which included joint ventures, rose 47% to 14,087, with volumes recovering after the pandemic and subsequent lockdowns. And of these 14,000 homes, 18% were affordable homes. Taylor Wimpy's net private reservation rate was 0.91 homes per outlet per week, which was ahead of the 0.76 last year, whilst cancellation rates returned to normal of 14%, down from 20% last year. Meanwhile, average selling prices rose £12,000 to £300,000, with private completions rising 3% to £332,000, helping offset build cost inflation. This resulted in margins growing to 19.3% from 10.8% last year, and the order book stood at around £2.9 billion, ahead of the £2.8 billion last year, 
with a group more than 60% forward sold for private completions in 2022. Net cash was up 16.3% to £837 million with higher operating profits. Money owed to land creditors was up to £806.4 million from £675.9 million last year. Also to note, in March 2021, an additional £125 million provision was set aside to address cladding and fire safety improvements, which, added, was, which was added to the exceptional items. The group announced a final dividend of 4.4p a share alongside a £150 million share buyback. In terms of valuation, Taylor Wimpy has a market cap of £5.48 billion and has a price to book of 1.16, compared with a 10-year average of 1.55 and yields a prospective 8.3%. Again, similar to Persimmon, I thought these were very strong results, particularly with a, a very strong revenue growth. Margins not quite as good as Persimmon, but they're still very decent and they're 60% forward sold for 2022. It looks very strong, the dividends well covered, and I suppose the same concerns about the broader market as with Persimmon, but I mean, I think these were impressive numbers. What do you think, Sam? Very impressive. I don't understand why the revenue growth was so much higher than Persimmon. Were they just affected more by lock? I don't. I don't really understand why there's such a disparity. Yeah, um, you'd have thought with similar companies, you know, mm. the, both in the house building. I'm. I'm not. I'm not sure what 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 the explanation for that is. When I've got the same up, same year ends as well. Yeah, um, I, I don't. I don't get it. I, I really don't get that. Unless they like, unless they just stop building some, maybe and they just have. Yeah. Let's have a look at the. Yeah, that's why. Yes, yeah, so if you look at the pre-pandemic figures. Yeah. Are you like in the last? how many years before the pandemic so this is 2017 to 21 years inclusive person personal revenue 3.5 billion 3.7 3.6 3.3 that'll be the pandemic year then 3.6 in the last completed year if you do taylor wimpy 3.9 4 4.3 2.7 4.2 so there's just a much bigger drop okay. um so I, I think that's why i think they're just up against possibly easier comparatives 4.3 so yeah is this is this full year results yeah it's full year oh that's why they're just up against an easier comparative but they're both yeah. if you look at both of them they're both at about the 2019 figures okay so it's not it's, it's just because one of them had a worse pandemic year as to why that was i don't actually know i don't understand why the operating margins are so good on persimmon because it's it's talking about 22 percent. it's targeting 21 to 22 percent operating margin in taylor wimpy Persimmon's yeah, bombing it, away at, well, I can't remember what the Persimmon figure was, but it was, what was it, like it's 28? It's, it, yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. And well, I think well, when we looked at it a few years, uh, sorry, a few, a few years ago, a few weeks ago, uh, with Retro, that was that was lower, that was that was closer to the Taylor Wimpy. I think Persimmon just seems to be well, well ahead of the others. Because arms are all crap. Well, <laughs> I know yeah, they've had uh, problems with the build quality before, that would explain yeah, the margins. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you you get what you pay for with Persimmon, but they, this Persimmon, I think they commented previously. Um, that they, they do they, have a much know, lower average selling price too than yeah. Taylor, so it could be just the mix of they, the homes. And I and Persimmon is York based, um, and it's I think more more northern than uh, Taylor. I think Ta Taylor Wimpy is geographically more spread than Persimmon is. What's the PE ratio for Taylor Wimpy then? The PE ratio for Taylor Wimpy is eight point eight four. Oh, so they're pretty similar. Yeah. Uh, almost bang on i'd probably go with taylor wimpy 
I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'd want to. <laughs> I don't know. I think Fersman's, if those margins come down for whatever reason, say they have to improve the build quality, as an example, Taylor Wimpy possibly wouldn't have that issue as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd probably. And Taylor Wimpy as well. I think it's in the couple of years since we've covered it, it's probably demonstrated the management's a bit better just because they, they're the ones that did the land buy at the bottom, aren't they? They did, they did. Which, exactly which I criticise them for, but it's proven yeah, to be a very it, good decision. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Then, I mean, we have looked at Redro, and Redro is cheaper again still. I mean, that trades at 6.8 times earnings. So. I'd probably go with, Persimmon, with Taylor Wimpy over Persimmon, I think. Uh, yeah. No. But both, both very good, actually. Both very reasonably priced, I think. Yeah, no, fair enough. Okay, so on to one of your favourite stocks, Sam. Yes, Hargreaves Lansdowne, a stock I own and enjoy talking about. They have come out with... And their... invest on. Yeah, yeah. I'm a Hargreaves man. <laughs> I don't mind paying the slightly higher fees because I get it back in my minuscule dividend every year. So, Although dividend's getting better, we will cover that. <laughs> Only because the share price keeps going down, but anyway. So Hargreaves have come out with their interim results for the six months ended 31 December 2021. Some of the highlights, they now have 1.693 million active clients, which is an increase of 48,000 since June 21, so in the last six months. The net new business is was 2.32 billion for the period, and that's down 28% from net new business of 3.24 billion last year. Total assets under administration was up 17% to 141.2 billion. Revenue was down 3% to 291.1 million. Underlying profit before tax was down 13% to 163.5 million. Profit before tax was down 20% to 151.2 million. Underlying diluted earnings per share. In fact, we'll just go with the diluted earnings per share. Diluted earnings per share were down 20% to 25.7p. And the dividend per share was up 3% to 12.26p a share. There were a few, a couple of interesting paragraphs from the CEO's statement, actually. So one of the paragraphs is, despite the macroeconomic uncertainty, net revenues of 291.1 million were only slightly down on last year. The end of 2020 was a unique period with market events like Vaccine Monday, which I didn't realize that's what it was called, but um, that drove record-breaking stockbroking volumes, along with very strong net new client growth and net new business. As management expected, this was not the case in 2021, and we also saw the full impact of the record low interest rates on our revenues. However, the strong performance from fund platform fees, which was up 21%, demonstrates the benefit of our diverse revenue streams and our ability to deliver under various market conditions. Then he also said, we also use our understanding of how clients want to engage with us to make our own communications with them relevant and and effective. This includes new podcast channels such as Switch Switch Your Money On Podcast and our Better Investors program that we started during the pandemic. This program leverages our technology and data to deliver multi-channeled, personalized and targeted communications that increase client engagement with their investments, build understanding of key investment topics and improve confidence in managing their financial futures. The impact of this work is clear with 30% of clients showing an increased, sorry, showing an improved risk score and 40% showing an increased diversification score in their portfolios. After the campaign, our clients know that we are their trusted partner with the tools and insight to support them on their journey from starting out the portfolios to building their wealth and financial resilience through their lifetime. I just want to talk about this paragraph just because it, it's a bit of an, it's slightly anecdotal, but there's a few of us at work that use Hargreaves Lansdowne. One of the guys at work, he, I think if he wasn't investing, he would probably be gambling. 
because that is basically how he does it. A lot of the SPACs and the very, very highest growth. I mean, when you get uncomfortable paying a PE (laughs) above 30, I don't think he bought much last year that had a price to sales under 30. It was like Mm. the the most expensive. It was all the hype stocks. It was the most expensive of the most expensive. And then we were in the office the a few weeks ago and he was like oh did you get a message from Hargreaves Lansdowne saying that your portfolio is like very very high risk and you might want to take a look at it <laughs> I was like no what do you mean <laughs> like it made sense so he must have got one of these where they're like actually like tailoring it to what's in the portfolio so they've had a look and realized and well, I was saying to, I, but I mean it, it came a bit late actually because he was down like 60 percent in a year so I was like, <laughs> it would have been nice if they told him that a year ago but um yeah. just quite interesting anyway Oh, they've given some guidance on the operating margins and they've said, we expect underlying operating margins to improve from the low 50s in the 2023 financial year to 55% plus by the 2026 financial year on a sustainable basis. On a statutory basis, we expect statutory operating margins to improve from the mid 40s in 2023 financial year, rising to approximately 55% by the 2026 financial year. We will operate with positive jaws, i.e. revenue growth exceeding cost growth, on a run rate basis as we exit 2023 onwards. And they gave a breakdown of the revenue from the different sectors. Revenue on funds increased by 21% to 133.2 million. And they've said that was driven by the increase in the average assets under administration. Revenue on shares decreased by 10% to 101.8 million. Volumes fell by 18%, whereas the average shares assets under administration has grown by 37% thanks to net inflows and a recovery on the markets. The drop in deal volumes and revenues year on year primarily relates to the significant boost seen in November and December of H1 on the back of Pfizer announcing the success of their vaccine trials. We remain the market leader in terms of UK stockbroking volumes with a 40.1% share. Revenue on cash decreased by 66% to 11.3 million as the net interest margin fell. Net interest margin has been impacted by the emergency base rates cuts to an all-time low of 0.1 of a percent. The majority of the SIP cli- of the client's SIP money placed on rolling 13-month term deposits and non-SIP money on terms of up to 95 days. The full impact of the rate fall took over a year to flow through, and the peak of its impact in this period has been in this period as expected. As we progress through the first half of our year, expectations of interest rate rises gain momentum until on 16 December, we saw the base rate increase to 0.25% and a further increase to 0.5% on 3rd of February. This is beneficial to our revenues, but in part, it depends on whether the banks we place deposits with pass on the rate increase, plus the fact that it takes 13 months to fully see the upside of such rate increases. HL funds consist of 10 multi-manager funds on which the management fee ranges from 60 basis points to 75 basis points a year and three select equity funds on which the management fee is 60 basis points. Although the average funds under management were up 14% versus last year, the revenue from HL funds only increased by 7% to 31.4 million. As previously announced, price cuts took effect on 28 June 2021. This is really interesting, I think, because the shares took a hammer in it's a it's a, a few weeks since these results actually came out but the shares took a hammer in when they came out and part of the reason was the, the revenue had dropped even though they'd announced it would because of the trading i think when you jump into it in a bit more detail i know the revenue fell 10 percent for the shares revenue and but the volumes fell 18 percent, whereas the actual shares assets under administration grew 37 percent. so i'm not entirely sure why the stock reacted the way it did firstly because they'd already announced there was going to be a decline 
and secondly, I, I think the fact that assets under administration are growing, the, the share, the market share is so high. I think these are all very positive things. They, there are going to be some circumstances where people trade more and some where they trade less. I don't, and the fact that it's dropped to a point where it's the cheapest it's been in over five years, it's a bit strange. I think because I would have really thought it would be like more of a one-time. Well, I, I don't know why shareholders were expecting this one-off thing to happen every year, and it's now worth less than it was before this one-off thing happened. But anyway, and the other thing is they now they have a ninety-two point seven percent client retention rate. In terms of the valuation, they are trading at a P ratio of eighteen and a half. They have a return on capital employed of twenty-seven point five percent, and the dividend yield, because the share price has fallen so much, is now three point six nine percent. In terms of the actual figures for the last five years. Revenue for the 2017 to 21 year inclusive has risen from 385 million to 631 million. Client numbers doubled, more than doubled in that time to almost 1.7 million. And the operating profit has increased from 261 million to 365 million. I think this is a very strong business and I think it's a business that keeps getting better. Although the share price keeps getting worse, I do have to say. I think at a PE of 18 and a half with a dividend yield approaching 4%. I mean, that's that's Unilever territory of dividend that is. is it's getting there. I, I just, for a business that strong with that stronger market share, I, I think it's very, very cheap. And I, I like it a lot. And I'm very happy with these results. John, what are your unbiased thoughts on these results uh, on unbi- hybrids as a business? Um, I, I mean, I, did, I certainly didn't think they were terrible results. I mean, it's assets under management were up 14%, although the operating profit was down at similar amounts, and it does have very high margins. I suppose I would worry that it's a very competitive market, and I can't see the margins getting better. Imagine, if anything, they're going to be driven down with all of that competition, and whether it's going to retain a 40% market share. I appreciate it does have high customer retention, but it is expensive. And that's, I mean, that's the main reason I don't use it. And then I I guess if you're an investor as well, suspending the special dividends to, you know, invest more and go into the wealth management side of things. I I just don't know. I I don't know whether it's experienced that huge growth as an online platform. And now it's sort of, I don't know, not declining, but becoming less of the growth business that it once was. So what do you think of the valuation then at 18 times earnings? I don't think it's unreasonable. And I think you've certainly made the bull case for it. I probably would be a bit more bearish and wouldn't pay 18 times earnings for it. Um, but yeah, uh, I appreciate I appreciate your arguments for it, but it wouldn't be one for me. I think it's an interesting one because I think if you look at, so in five years, the stock's down 21%, three years mm. it's down 40%, and in one year it's down 30%. It's a much better business than it was five years ago. You can maybe mm. argue it was too expensive five years ago, but at some, I mean, we've, we've seen some serious multiple compression with this business in the last few years. The mm. fact that the dividend yields now as high as it is, and this is, it's, I, I view it quite similar to money supermarket. It's a business that just churns out cash. Mm. I, I would be quite optimistic for the future of the business. I think they are expensive, but they are also the best. Mm. I, I, that That is the reason for it. And, you know, if, like if you look at the competition with like free trade and so it's a completely different demographic of people that are using the free mm. trade ones and if you look at the average value per client and the size of the portfolio hargreaves is much bigger hargreaves isn't the 20 year old investing their student loan in tesla hargreaves is mm. you know it's the 40 year old solicitor that's got half a million to spend and they just want the best mm. and if they have to pay 10 pounds a, a trading fee but they're only doing it a few times a year 
they're, they're happy to pay that. I mean, for example, like we both, we both use Halifax share trading um, as, um, and then, and I use Hargreaves as well. And you use some, something else. I can't remember what, but I think it might be like free trade or something, but Hargreaves is a much better platform to use than Halifax share dealing. Halifax hmm. is cheaper, but if I had a large amount of money, I'd possibly just pay for Hargreaves. I think I'd prefer having the easier platform. Mm, yeah. I mean, on, I think I'm quoting the right Hargreaves figures just from memory. I think on a portfolio up to 250,000, it's 0.45%. That's only on, that's on a fund though. That's not on an, there's no, there's no management fee for the shares. That's only if you're buying funds. Um, So if if you were to go and buy an individual stock, say Taylor Wimpy, you wouldn't pay that 0.45%. It's only if you, so for example, if that's one thing that actually does annoy me a bit, but like, say you bought like a Vanguard index fund, Vanguard are charging you like 0.1 of a percent. Yeah. And Hargreaves add on another 0.45 of a percent. Yeah. That's that's so a bit annoying. But if you're picking your own yeah. shares, there's not really, it's the £10 trading fee that's really the issue. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, to me, what's quite attractive about, well, whether it's Halifax or Interactive Investor, is that they just have a flat fee for the platform. So then it's it doesn't matter if you've got a larger portfolio, you're just sitting at that flat fee. That that's That's one of the attractions. But then I don't know. But is Hargreaves competition the free trades, or is it? You know, I mean, well, I, mean I, I appreciate Halifax, but Halifax is a worse platform to use. So you you get what you pay for with that. And mm-hmm. you, you know, if you've tried to like, you know, I've had to ring Hargreaves a couple of times about various issues over the years. They're very easy to get on the phone. I can think of a time. I can think of times where you've had to ring Halifax, and it's been a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you are. It's, I think you are getting something for the money. And as well, it's um, like John Kingham said when he came on for the interview, they're, they're still they're going in for the cash ISA market now. And if you look at the cash ISA market compared to the stocks and shares ISA market, it's a lot bigger. Um, mm. And I think they've got a very good chance, you know, because if a lot of the people are going to be targeting, they've already got stocks and shares accounts with Hargreaves. So why wouldn't they give Hargreaves the cash accounts as well? I think they've got a very good chance of taking a very good slice of that market. And there could be a lot of growth there. Mm. So I'm optimistic um, and I actually wouldn't be against adding to Hargreaves and it's something I may well consider in the next couple of months. Fair enough. So the next company we have is Entain which is a FTSE 100 gaming company and bookmaker owner of Ladbrooks and Foxy Bingo. They had the full year results out this week with net gaming revenue rising 8% ignoring the effect of exchange rates to £3.9 billion. Retail volumes recovered over 90% of pre-pandemic levels, and the online business reported a ninth successive year of double-digit growth. Higher costs held EBITDA back, growing at 5% to £881.7 million, but ahead of guidance. The online division reported net gaming revenue of £3.1 billion, 13% ahead of last year, with strong growth in all key markets except for the Netherlands and Germany with regulatory changes. Sports wages were up 21% to £14.2 billion and margins up 12.7%. Operating costs rose 15% with acquisitions and inflation, but underlying profits were up an impressive 12% to £899 million. The retail division saw net gaming revenue fall 7%, to £791.1 million with the impacts of lockdowns in the first half. 
Sports wages were down 9% to £2.3 billion, but net gaming revenue from machines grew 12%. A 2% reduction in operating costs in the division was more than offset by a decline in the net gaming revenue, leading cash profits down 32% to £66.9 million. In, and this is something we've mentioned previously, in Bet MGM, the joint venture with MGM Resorts in the US, net gaming revenue ballooned nearly five times to $850 million. In the fourth quarter, the group's market share in sports betting and iGaming was up 23% within the 21 states in which it operates, which actually represents 37% of the US adult population. The group is expecting that this joint venture will deliver over $1.3 billion in revenue in 2022 and reach positive cash profits by 2023. Losses with Bet MGM totaled £161.9 million, which was in line with the group's expectations. Entain had a free cash outflow of £137.7 million compared with an inflow of £451.2 million last year, largely down to the investment in Bet MGM and acquisitions which included Enlabs and Bet.pt. Net debt came in at £2.1 billion or 2.4 times cash profits, which was up from £1.8 billion last year. In terms of valuation, Entain has a market cap of just under £10.2 billion and trades at just under 19 times earnings, compared with a 10-year average of 12.2, and it has a prospective dividend yield of 2.3%. I mean, I thought these were very, very strong results, and I think particularly exciting if you're if you're an Entain shareholder would be the American joint venture with MGM and just how big the MGM venture and the online gaming in the US could get. Whether you, I suppose whether you like it or not. The UK is a big betting co- uh, country with a lot of the with a lot of the big uh, gaming companies listed on the FTSE 100. So there is a, a huge potential for growth, which I think probably is re- reflected in that pretty toppy valuation of nearly 19 times earnings. And also the other thing I sort of thought was the debt is it's it's getting quite high, but it looks like it would be it's you know is able to afford that at the moment. It wouldn't be a company I would invest in more for the ethical reasons rather than anything else, but it's, I can see some of the excitement that's associated with it. Sam, what are your thoughts on Entain? Similar to you, actually. I think really whether or not you want to pay 19 times earnings for it comes down to how big you think the US side of the business can grow to. I wouldn't, so I don't know if I would be, I was going to say I wouldn't be comfortable making that bet, but I I don't know. At the same time, I, I think it could be a very, very large market. And if they're already in, what did it say? Um, 21, mar- yeah. tw- 21 markets, 37% of the population with a 23% market share. That's that's pretty good. And I think, you know, as it gets bigger and bigger in the US, once people are entrenched to one platform, they are just probably going to stay there, really. So if they, you know, I know it's losing money, but if you spend all the money on the marketing now, I think it is well worth doing down the line. So I, I can see the appeal of it. But like you, I wouldn't invest for ethical ethical reasons. I think I'd rather invest in tobacco, to be honest. <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> and, I suppose all, and also on that front, I think there, are, there is going to be a regulatory review in the UK in the next few weeks. So that's something, is some, something to watch. But um, yeah, I, it, it, for me, Entain, it, is all, it, all, it does all hinge on that US venture. Uh, Same. Which, 
Yeah. yeah well, if that um, if that doesn't go the way you're hoping, you don't want to pay 19 times earnings for a business yeah, like this. Yeah, exactly. And you look at the 10 year average, you think you might be get, you know, there'd be a re-rating that was due if that failed. Yeah. Okay. Right, should we move on to the US company? Yes. Go for it, Sam. Duolingo. So Duolingo. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's probably the most popular app for learning a language in the world. If you don't know what it is, I'd be amazed if you don't know a person that's using it, even if you're not aware you do. But I know quite a few people are using it for Italian, Spanish and Mandarin, I think. So they went public, I think it was only like summer of 2021. They've not been public very long. And they've come out with their Q4 and full year results for 2021. I'll start with the Louis von Arn, who's co-founder and CEO. He's comments included in the fourth quarter our user growth accelerated and we added more net subscribers than ever before capping off a year in which our revenue grew by 55 percent i credit this growth and our record-breaking metrics to our focus on making learning fun and effective and to our new product initiatives that made duolingo plus more valuable looking ahead to 2022 we have exciting plans to make our products even more engaging and valuable for our learners and we also have plans to continue broadening our offerings beyond languages I look forward to building upon the progress we've made as we strive towards our mission to make the world's best education universally available. So the highlights for the quarter, total bookings were $90.8 million, and all these figures are in dollars, an increase of 59% from the previous year. Subscription bookings were $69.8 million, an increase of 61% from the previous year. Paid subscribers totaled $2.5 million at the year end, an increase of 56% from the prior year. Monthly active users grew 15% to 42.4 million in the fourth quarter, and daily active users grew 20% to 10.1 million, both of which are all-time highs. Total revenues were 73 million, an increase of 51% from the prior year. Net losses totaled $17.5 million, compared to a net loss of 10.4 million in the prior year, with the majority of this change driven by stock-based compensation. Adjusted EBITDA was $0.3 million, compared to $2.9 million in the prior year. Total bookings, oh, and these now the full year highlights. Total bookings were 294 million, an increase of 55%. Subscription bookings were 224.5 million, an increase of 56%. Total revenues were 250.8 million, an increase of 55%. Net losses totaled 60.1 million compared to a net loss of 15.8 million in the prior year, with the majority of the change driven by IPO related stock based compensation and other IPO costs. Adjusted EBITDA was a loss of 1.1 million compared to income of 3.6 million in the prior year. So monthly active users 42.4, daily active users 10.1 million, and paid subscribers 2.5 million. So what happens if you go down the if you go and download the app, so you want to use a language, you can go and do these like five, 10 minute lessons every day or however long you get on it. You'll be hit with ads if you're on the free version and you can pay to get rid of the ads and unlock new features. In fact, as well, it's probably worth going over some of the previous figures from before they went public. So there's only three years of results available, but 2019 revenue was 70 million. That's up to 161 million in 2020 and 226 million in 2021. Gross profit was 50 million in 2019. That's up to 115 million in 2020 and 163 million in 2021. I'll just look out what the gross profit margin is actually. So that's a gross profit margin of 71.6%. Operating income's a loss, although a lot of that's driven by selling and marketing expenses, which are just being plowed back into the business. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a price to sales of 13 with no earnings. I think this is quite an interesting business. I think it's, I've never used the app, but I'm familiar with quite a few people that do. For me, this would go in the too hard pile. I struggle to picture how big the business can be. And so in terms of the current market cap, it's only 
just under three billion dollars. You know, if I look at it and say, could it be a hundred a one hundred billion dollar business? I, I don't really see that. Um, I could be wrong. If I look at it, I guess if they become this universal education platform they're wanting to be, then maybe they could. But I'd, I'd struggle to see that, certainly based on just the languages alone. Could it be a $10 billion business? I, I don't know either. I think at a price of sales of 13, it, I, I don't look at it and see it as obviously being a business that's worth X amount one day or whatever it is. So I, I do struggle. I think I would always struggle to place a valuation on it until it's actually got some earnings I can look at. I would also wonder as well, just thinking about it, these results are very good and the growth, you know, in, in the three years figures we've got are fantastic. Would they have benefited from the reopening and a lot of people are wanting to start traveling again? So maybe they're learning the language in anticipation and would there then be a drop off once things are reopened back to normal? Because really, there's probably only so many people that do want to learn a second language. Like, I don't really see a scenario that would ever get me on there as a user. I've got quite literally no desire to learn a second language. John, what are your thoughts on these results and the company and its valuation? I mean, I think the valuation is is eye-watering, but I suppose it has been delivering exponential growth, although we've only got three years of figures. Yeah, I mean, similarly to you, I don't know enough about the market, how big it could grow. And then you had companies in the past that used to, I used to see a lot on like TV adverts, like Rosetta Stone. I don't know what is different about Duolingo and where it can go, where some of those other businesses kind of were the, the thing five or 10 years ago and then fell by the wayside. So yeah, not knowing enough about it and it being, well, more than 10 times sales, 13 or whatever it is, it probably wouldn't lead me to having another look, but you know, it could well be wrong. And if it continues with those numbers, then, you know, you see it growing into what could be a, you know, a fantastic business in the long run. Yeah. I don't know very much. Um, there's not really much that makes me want to look any further either. Um, it's just so hard to like get a, get a hold of it really and understand. I think it's a very difficult business to understand just because there's no direct comparison. I think you would maybe mm. if you took and maybe if you're if, wrong if you're wrong yeah. if you're wrong yeah it's got a long way to go. <laughs> exactly. I think Whereas Taylor you, Wimpy you could be wrong and uh, sorry not Taylor Wimpy um you could be wrong on Hargreaves and uh you know you don't have that that far. Um, yeah but, yeah anyway. I, I suppose um, like maybe if you because the market cap's under three billion Maybe if you were sort of running your portfolio in a similar way to Flosser, where you just said, well, like, it's it's quite a small market cap. It's going in as a moonshot, and I'm not really bothered about valuation at all, but I just don't really have that in my portfolio. I know you definitely don't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> of, of well, the, no, I don't know. Of the six businesses then, Persimmon, ITV, Taylor Wimpy, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Entain, and Duolingo, if you had to buy one, which one would it be? Fairly easy one. I'd go with Taylor Wimpy. And for the reasons um, we covered before, and I, I, I'm not as pessimistic about what might happen with inflation and interest rates. And I think, you know, the fundamentals behind it are still strong. Would your second choice be Persimmon? Mm, yeah, I mean, it, pro it, it probably would be, but that's uh, the same, similar, very similar businesses. I think after that, probably go for ITV, but uh, okay. it would be a bit, I'd be a bit reluctant with the remainder yeah, my, my first would be Hargreaves Lansdowne, and I may I may well be topping up on it in the next couple of months. Um, my second choice would probably be ITV over the house builders, I think. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, well, thank you again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. 
This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.